Slate Plus members get early access to our Walking Dead podcast at 10 p.m. on Sundays, immediately following the broadcast on AMC. If you're not a Slate Plus member but want early access, sign up at slate.com slash podcast plus. Hello and welcome to Slate's Walking Dead podcast. I'm Mike Volo, senior producer here in Washington, D.C. Joining me from New York City is Slate video producer Chris Wade. Hey, Chris. Hello, Mike. How are you, buddy? I'm well. It's been, what, two months? Yeah, it's been a quite a little interregnum here for season five of The Walking Dead. They split it up into two parts, and we're now on episode nine, What's Happened and What's Going On is the title of it. But first, just a quick announcement We will be making this podcast available to Slate Plus listeners only for the first 24 hours, and then it will revert to the wide listening public. This is uh, good news for the DVR crowd who's watching it on Monday night anyway. Yeah, that would probably be me if we weren't getting the screeners, but we are, and so you and I are watching these episodes on our 13-inch screens. Not quite the experience, really, they're going for, I would imagine. Hey, I'm a, I'm a video producer, so I, I went all in on the 15-inch screen. Oh, okay. So this episode nine, the cold open, which I loved, begins with a close-up of a mound of dirt being shoveled. One assumes, I assume, that they were burying Beth, who died in the last episode. Gabriel is presiding over the burial. He's reading from 2 Corinthians. We look not at what can be seen, but we look at what cannot be seen. Did you recognize that passage offhand? I recognize it as a biblical passage. I wasn't sure exactly where it was from, but I looked it up. Using context clues, I discerned it was from the Bible. (laughs) Yes. So there are violins playing in the background throughout the cold open. There are kind of fancy jump cuts with the camera. There's interesting lighting effects as scenes. The whole thing is very ambient and impressionistic. Very moody and stylized. And we see what... I thought at first were flashbacks, but it turns out that they're actually flash forwards. The whole thing lasts a couple of minutes, but I found it very well done. Yes, I thought that there was some pretty good Walking Dead direction in this episode, and that cold open definitely was impressive. It really stuck with me, and it was unlike something that I had seen the show do in a long time. That being said, by like the sixth time that it flashed into that hallucinatory realm was beginning to wear on me. Yeah. The whole gang makes a plan to accompany Noah to Richmond, Virginia, where he's originally from. And they're hoping to find what he says is a fortified place there where his family and others live peacefully among each other. It was sort of Beth's wish to accompany him there. And they're in a sense fulfilling her her wish now that she's dead. And the whole B plot to the emotional and tonal A plot to this episode involves the gang that has gone on this expedition, which is Glenn, Rick, Michonne, Tyrese, and Noah, kind of discussing what their next move is once it's revealed, surprise, that this fortified compound in Richmond is compromised and everyone there appears to be dead, especially between in a conversation between Glenn, Michonne, and Rick about what exactly even the idea of a destination is. Every place they wind up turns out to be dead or ruined or compromised in some way. And so whether or not they should even have a destination or or what their goal is. And so I I kind of like the idea of 
their best choice right now is to go someplace because somebody who died wanted to. <laughs> like fulfilling a a will like wish is like their best motivation or reasoning. Why not? Yeah, and as they're traveling in the car to Richmond, Noah and Tyrese are sitting up front. Tyrese is driving. And they have a kind of heart-to-heart between them. They're talking about their families, pre-apocalypse. They're talking about being turned into killers, essentially. Rick and Michonne and Glenn are sitting in the back seats, just quiet. They're not even really interjecting at all. And I wasn't really sure at the time what we were supposed to get out of that. As the episode developed, it made it seem like they were quickly trying to make us emotionally invested in Tyrese more so than we had been before. Although he's a great character, we didn't really know very much about his background. Yeah. I mean, I think that Tyrese is one of the people that I'm most low boil emotionally invested in throughout the entire series. I find that his story arcs usually have a little bit more nuance to them. And I also just think that that actor, Chad Coleman, is really spectacular at just conveying a lot of complicated emotional reasoning just by being on screen without really having to say anything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of the long, quivered-lipped looks off screen in the show work, and some don't, but I think his mostly worked. You know, it occurred to me while I was watching it, and he was talking about his father and when he was a kid, how his father would make them watch or listen to the news and in particular bad news. And it occurred to me, I don't really know even where Tyrese is from. Do we know that? Like, has that been revealed? So I looked up on this wiki online, a Walking Dead wiki, and it says Tyrese is a character that we really don't know much about pre-apocalypse. Although apparently he's from Jacksonville, Florida. Did you know that? No. I mean, they probably mentioned it offhandedly in some low-key conversation they had in season three when he was first introduced and you had no idea whether or not he would be important later on. Yeah. So it wasn't just me forgetting. We actually don't know very much about Tyrese. And, well, spoiler alert, he ends up dying in this episode. It's sort of the main thrust of this episode. It felt to me in retrospect that they were using this scene and a few others later on to get us more emotionally invested in his backstory. Yeah. And we're like 10 minutes into this podcast now, and I think that we've beaten around the bush a lot. And I just want to say that I thought this episode was bullshit, and I could not, I rarely, rarely get this angry about plot developments in it, but I am furious that Tyrese is dead because he was one of the best characters and one of the strongest characters for keeping this show compelling. Other deaths I don't really use this term to describe because, again, I kind of think The Walking Dead is what it is, but this felt very cheap and very unuseful for the show, and I'm mad. Let's just discuss how it came to be that he died. So they're driving to this encampment near Richmond, Virginia, and they stop about two miles from their destination because, you know, it's The Walking Dead. You can't be too careful in a zombie apocalypse. They don't know what they're going to find there. And they then hoof it through the woods for the rest of the way. And so they get to what appears to be a kind of gated community, right? There's even a sign that says Shire Wilt Estates. So Shire Wilt. <laughs> yeah, it looks like some kind of upper middle class housing development that they then turned into this fortified compound. And they learned that it's burned out and overridden with 
zombies and everyone there appears to be dead. And for some reason that was never explained, and I like that it was never explained, but I thought a good detail, littered with these like half dismembered zombie corpses. Yeah. Where it was just like the top half of a body or like a, just a torso with a head sticking out of it. They even run into a truck later that's just full of these torso head zombies, which were uh, disgusting and great. And I'm glad that they never had to, like, explain exactly what happened here. But don't you think that will be explained in the future? It just seems like such an odd, specific detail that they are laying the groundwork for something. Why would they ever come back here after they leave? I mean, I'm I'm almost sure that this episode will be fade in, season five, part two, drive to someplace that'll never be mentioned again. One of the best characters gets killed while wistfully staring off at a picture. He hallucinates for a while. They drive away. Well, I'm not suggesting that they're going to come back here, but they might run into somebody or some group of people who were responsible. The dismemberer? Yeah, exactly. The dismemberer. So Noah, of course, is totally distraught. He is sobbing on the ground. Michonne and Glenn are totally demoralized because they were really hoping to find some sanctuary there. And at some point, Noah insists on going into what was his house where his mom and his twin brother and maybe some others lived. Noah finds, I think, what we're supposed to believe is his mother, right, lying on the floor. He covers her Mm -hmm. with a blanket, and Tyrese walks into one of the bedrooms where there's a photo on the wall of Noah and his twin brother. And, of course, his twin brother, it turns out, is still alive and zombified and comes up behind Tyrese and bites him on the arm. Now, shortly after this is where things kind of get weird in the episode. And, in fact, I usually take some notes as I'm watching the episode, Once Tyrese started hallucinating dead, walking dead characters, I put my pen down and just kind of watched the entire rest of the episode agape. I I couldn't believe what they were doing. I wasn't sure why this was going on and what this particular device was that they were trying to utilize here. What did you make of it? Well, first, I I thought that this bite itself was... Other than for purposes of setting up a death and this episode, it's just like totally out of nowhere. (laughs) Tyrese has proved himself to be an incredibly competent survivalist, if a little encumbered by his emotional clock, which makes him a great character. And this was just this totally out of nowhere, like, think of the rabbits, George moment as he's staring at this nice picture from the past and then out of nowhere this silent monster kills him for total shock value for no compelling fighting reason zombies announce themselves right i mean they're usually grunting and groaning they're probably going to creak the floorboards as he's walking up it's just nonsense that he wouldn't hear it and again the randomness of the brutality is one of the things that makes this show what it is that A lot of times violence and even death comes for no definable reason, which is one of the arguably interesting or uninteresting parts of this, depending on how you feel about watching something that is totally bleakly nihilistic at almost all times, which apparently a lot of people really do. Hi, all the people that think of that. But this one felt totally unearned in being like, well, we just gave him one sucker punch at the end that kind of worked as a weird half season arc. Uh, let's come back and give them another sucker punch just because they love it. Yeah, you love it, don't you? For me, I'm not so upset about Tyrese dying, right? Major characters get killed off on that show. That's a fact of life in the zombie apocalypse. And we know that going in. What I'm confused about is the whole hallucination of Martin, who is baiting Tyrese 
still chewing gum, by the way. <laughs> Bob, who is giving him advice, sort of. The governor, who is berating him. Beth, who stages a concert with Lizzie and Mika and is playing the guitar and singing to him. Every man has a right to live. What were these hallucinations? I mean, you could maybe say that they represented, like... The five stages of grief, because we have Martin, who's bargaining. You could have done, think of all the little choices that you made, and any one of the changes might have resulted in you being in a different place. Mm -hmm. And Bob saying something along the lines of, it could have only been this way. There was no other thing to be done. Death is inevitable. This moment was inevitable, which maybe could have been along the lines of depression, that your choices don't affect anything. You had the governor yelling at him, a bill had to be paid. This is what you get which is maybe a, an outwardly focused at him, anger. The two little sisters that he had to or was involved with their death beckoning him forward. Mm-hmm. I like it. Yeah. And eventually like getting to acceptance. Right. Although they don't quite map perfectly well, I bet you could go in and, and an essay-length piece parse that moment out. But basically there are four or five different perspectives as to what death means in this moment maybe different forms of rationalizing what might in the end be a random moment in his life. Yeah, you know, that's that's a really good insight. And I may have found this whole hallucinatory stretch, which was more or less the latter half of the episode, I may have found it more affecting if I were watching this on, say, a big screen in a dark room, right? But I'm watching this on my laptop at a standing desk here at Slate, overlooking Connecticut Avenue, surrounded by my colleagues in a very well-lit room. Yeah, your offices are very well-lit down there. Lots of natural light. I found myself wondering if it didn't work for me because of the way that I was watching it or if it didn't work for me because it just didn't work. And I wasn't confident that I arrived at an answer. Well, at least I was watching this in my room lit by a single low wattage lamp with my whistling radiator and the howling snowy wind outside overlooking the Gowanus Canal. So maybe my environment was a little better. And I thought that this was okay. I mean, I guess my big quibble with this is that it just didn't give Tyrese any, anything to do other than just like react to these people yelling at him. And you had to be very, very invested in whatever this device was. And I thought that the device was okay and it resulted in a few scares like when the governor is approaching him and yelling at him and it turns out to be another zombie that bites him again and uh, which is like also why at that point other than getting that scare out of the hallucination though i did really like the moment when later in another hallucination the two little girls who everybody who listens i'm sorry that i constantly forget all the characters name lizzie and mika Yes, thank you. That when Lizzie and Mika are are pulling his arm, beckoning him, it then uh, smash cuts to realize that the other members of the group have found him and they are bracing his arm to be chopped off by Michonne, which I found to be a a very effective cut. Yeah, and it was very Herschel redux, right? Because Herschel had his Mm -hmm. leg cut off and I assumed that that was what was going to happen because Tyrese was really regaining his will to live there in those five stages before acceptance had fully set in. And he kind of slowly fades and gives into the light while they're driving. And they're just overcome with grief, we can imagine, as they're standing there in the street. I did think that that moment was particularly touching, especially for Walking Dead. Just that moment that was all the wide shot of the car cresting the ridge and stopping 
and all four people inside getting out immediately and you just knew what yeah. had happened. I thought that was a pretty stunningly affecting moment in this show. I've seen a number of people involved with the show, the showrunners and um, Andrew Lincoln, who plays Rick, have mentioned that they think that this is the uh, best episode in the series or among the best episodes in the series. And you know what? Tonally, I will give them that, that this episode, for what it did, the dreamlike state that it embraced, reached to a, a tonal higher plane of like hazy hallucinatory existence than much of the rest of the show has been able to obtain. And I think that the good direction really did a lot. And this weird device that was slowly unspooled exactly what it was supposed to do. I was quite impressed with this, even if the uh, actual events of the group, I found a little disheartening. Something that we've talked about before on this podcast is the odd way in which one black character on the show dies as soon as a new black character comes along. And that's precisely what happened in this episode. Yes. Literally as soon as Noah is officially adopted into the group the very next episode, the longest running, or I guess Sasha is still there and they were introduced at the same time. One of the longest running black characters is written off. It is like there is a black character quota where... (laughs) (laughs) One shuffling in has to shuffle some other ones out. But I was also thinking to give the show a little credit, I thought that it was cool to have a core five-person group of this cast that was on the show. And even though he is the main character and usually the center of the emotional investment, though I think we were talking in the last batch of episodes that he was less the emotional anchor now than he had ever been. Yeah, he has receded somewhat. But that there is only, you know, only one white guy in that car. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it is a pleasingly diverse group of people. And even if you factor in the other car with Carol and Eugene and the rest, it's still a pretty diverse cast. So something that occurred to me when I was watching this episode is I think they traveled, they said, 500 miles to Richmond. Is that right? From Something like that. Yeah, from, I guess, where they were in Atlanta. Yeah, Atlanta. And they didn't encounter any other living person. I don't understand. Is is the U.S., is the Earth so overrun with zombies at this point that there are very few actual humans left? Is that what we're supposed to believe? I mean, I think that this show is never going to give us succinct answers. I feel like it would be actually a, a crazy tonal shift for them to, like, roll up on, like, some NORAD base that was like, oh, actually, here's exactly what's going on in the world right now and kind of ruin a little bit of the mystery here. I think that at this point they have to assume that until they see another person, they are the last people on Earth. That would kind of be my operating assumption. Although I do wish that there was some way that they could work in a a plot line where they do encounter a very large group of people, like larger even than, you know, Happy Town or whatever the governor's compound was called. Yeah, I understand that frustration. And I think we're both fascinated about how societies would reconstruct themselves in this world and what if they were to encounter an actually stable group of people that seem to be operating with both a significant chance of survival and self-sustaining possibility and without being run by a psychopath. And so far, they have not encountered something that fits both those models, that it would be the end of the show, right? Because then that's like, oh, well, here we are. We've made it. And then either they (laughs) carving their swath of destruction across relatively stable, though maybe morally questionable communities would find some way to ruin it. 
or, you know, they would just settle down. Right. There needs to be some larger context here for me at this point. They've been surviving now for years in terms of seasons of the show. And I feel like I don't have a larger earth in which to situate them anymore. Along those lines, where do you think that the back half of the season is going to go? So far, we have zero markers. Oh, other than a a tentative decision that, hey, maybe Washington, D.C. wasn't such a bad idea, even if Eugene was being such a jerk about it. Right. Yeah. And Washington, D.C. is only 100 miles from where they are now. If they just traveled 500 miles, this is nothing. Yeah. That's how far the proclaimers would walk for love. Sure. Absolutely. And so it seems that in the next episode, they're going to be headed to Washington, D.C. And I think one other clue that we've had now for a little while is that it seems that Morgan might be coming back. Yeah, we saw Morgan in full-on forest rogue garb uh, (laughs) at the end of last season, apparently tracking them from the school where the cannibals had camped out. If we were to assume that they trekked 500 miles in car to Richmond, that's a big trek on foot. But we also know that Morgan's a little crazy, so maybe he's got the stamina for it. But we don't really know why he's there. Maybe he's finally taking Rick up on his offer of acceptance. But, you know, he's kind of a a wild card future possibility. Yeah. We don't really get scenes from next week's Walking Dead on this, so we can only speculate. Yeah, and I wouldn't watch them anyway. I I like to go in totally blind. Yeah. I would like to see, by the way, a more buoyant role for Michonne. She has been kind of sulky and skulky for a long time now, and... And she was hit particularly hard by the revelation that Noah's encampment was no more. And so I'd like to see a little bit of a change in her character. Well, her best episode was the episode with Carl, where they became buds and opened each other up a little bit. That was great. And that's a great side of Michonne. It would be maybe cool to... I don't think that this is where it's going based on where their characters are now. But I kind of like the mode where Rick is in despondency mode and she has to be the de facto leader as, mm-hmm. like, the second grimmest <laughs> in, in the group. Yeah. A society in which leadership is based on grimness. Grimness and whispering. Yeah. Carl. Great talking to you again, Chris. We will uh, chat again next week. Thank you, everyone, for being a Slate Plus member. And if you're not, please sign up. It's really worth it, I think. There are lots of podcast extras that you can find across all of our shows. So thanks, and we'll talk to you next week. 